Welcome to the UK SpacePod 2021 series. During the next few weeks, our host Susie Imber will be chatting with industry experts, covering the five key themes of this year's UK Space Conference. Space to prosper. Space to observe and sustain. Space to protect. Space to live well. Space to inspire and explore. Episode 5, Space to Inspire and Explore, is sponsored by Team Athena and UK Research and Innovation. Hello, my name is Susie Imber and welcome to the fifth episode of our podcast series. In this episode, Space to Inspire and Explore, we're going to be discussing the combination of science, innovation and commercialization that are needed to thrive in the transformational space sector. My panel today are Chris Rocks, Barbara Ginelli, Sarah Casewell and Anya O'Brien. First off, for all of you, thank you very much for joining me today. Could you give us just a brief introduction to who you are and what you do? Hi, uh, my name is Chris Rocks. I'm the Director for Space and Security for Serco. Uh, we operate a number of space services, predominantly in the military, um, around the UK for both the UK government and for some of the allied services. Uh, and within our Europe team, are pretty much the other side, they work in the civil space and work for a, a number of contracts with ESA. Hi, I'm, um, I'm Barbara Ginelli. Uh, I am director for high-tech clusters and our campus development at uh, UKRI Science and Technology Facilities Council. My background is uh, in space, but I work across uh, a number of sectors and disciplines. Hi, I'm Sarah Casewell. I'm an STFC Ernest Rutherford Research Fellow at the University of Leicester, and I'm an observational astronomer with interest in stars mainly, white dwarfs, brown dwarfs, low-mass stars. Hi, I'm Anya O'Brien. I'm a PhD student in planetary science at the University of Glasgow. Um, my PhD um, is kind of centred around Martian astrobiology, so I search for organic molecules in Martian meteorites, um, I also work one day a week as a diversity officer for the Royal Astronomical Society, kind of just advocating for making the space sector and astronomy and geophysics a more inclusive and accessible field to work in for everyone. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to start with a question to all of you around what you think the UK's main strengths are um, in science and innovation. What do you think we do that's really world class? Susie, I, I think in the field of science, the UK benefits from a strong and long-standing academic structure in STEM subjects from which to build and develop skills. Uh, for centuries, but uh, certainly over the last hundred years, the UK have been pioneers across a whole host of sectors in health, aviation, technology, and since the 1960s in space. So looking at, a bit closer at space, I'd say we've made some world-leading steps in propulsion and power systems, biomedicine, in-orbit tracking and monitoring from the ground, as well as some other services such as communications and, and P&T. I think also uh, to add to what Chris uh, uh, said, that I completely agree. We've got a, a huge heritage across many, many areas. Uh, in fact, uh, the UK is a leader in many of uh, uh, the scientific areas that uh, Chris mentioned. Uh, but I think one of the biggest strengths we have is how we bring all of this together. Uh, and that is the biggest um, a stimulator for innovation, which distinguishes us uh, on a world stage, really. Um, when we've 
I've visited many countries uh, like China, for example, the US even, you know, and they always looked at the, at the UK as a, as a big driver for, for innovation because of this big strength that we've got of bringing together the various disciplines that we have. So where do you see important areas of science and innovations that you think will be transformational in the next decade? And in what areas do you think we could be really strong looking forwards? So I'm really inspired by how small satellites have taken off, clusters of small satellites, and in particular CubeSats, which are these, these tiny sort of 10 centimetres, slightly larger satellites. And we have schools putting them together and working on kit that's actually going to go into space. And I think this stuff is is fantastic. When I grew up, the idea of my school being able to put together a satellite was just bonkers. These things were done in massive clean rooms and really expensive facilities. Uh, the idea that you now perhaps don't need a load of money and all this fancy stuff to be able to put a CubeSat into space and do do actual science, I just think is fantastic. And, and I think um, also um, to add to that, with all these small satellites, um, we can do fantastic things that we couldn't do before. So uh, an increase in capabilities uh, in communications, for example, in terms of um, uh, increasing also our universal digital connectivity, which then will make huge difference in our life and the way that we develop our economy as well. So how do we actually make sure that uh, communications reach everywhere in the UK? You know, the leveling up agenda is such an important uh, topic at the moment, but really connectivity is really what will make a difference to, to really make sure that everybody can contribute in the same way from wherever they are across the country. And this is really what satellite technology together with uh, the ground-based technology can really make a huge difference for all of us. But also, if we want to look at um, uh, from a different angle, a little bit further away, even looking at space exploration, what benefit does that bring to us? Um, so all the innovations that we've got to develop um, to be on the moon in a longer time um, to to actually live there and you know innovations in um, medical advances how do we use um, for example the microgravity environment to to really even uh, do drug development in in space in a way that cannot be done here on Earth. Uh, how do we uh, develop um, sustainable systems so that we can actually have uh, greener solutions uh, also here on Earth? So it's it's all about the cyclic economy. It's about how do we actually uh, support uh, the health of human beings in, in a very uh, different environment. And that obviously will benefit us here on Earth. I think one of the uh, other challenges that um, is going to demand innovation and, and, and movement science is actually in space traffic management as well. Um, as more and more spacecraft are going to be launched and we want to go further, um, one of the um, issues we've got is trying to clear up some of the debris um, that's been going on for decades uh, and, and is going to cause some of the, uh, the issues for us. So over the last few years, we've made some major steps in terms of being able to track and manage that debris. Um, but what I think the one of the exciting advances that I'm uh, watching at the moment 
is some of the uh, uh, the systems that are up that, uh, that are due to launch either uh, or have launched recently or due to launch over the next three to five years that are going to tackle clearing it up, um, be it either by physical collection or laser targeting. Um, there's, there's a whole host of uh, really exciting projects going on. If you look at some of the agencies, NASA and ESA have been investing heavily into it, but you've also got commercial organizations like Astroscale and a number of other companies in North America who um, are really taking uh, the initiative and, and building uh, platforms and systems that can clear up. So uh, that's an element of innovation that I think will really affect one of the challenges we've got in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I, Chris, I was I just sat there thinking I totally agree with you. I think AstroScale, Astro I mean, you only have to look at their graphic of all the little people hoovering in space and stuff just to see. It's just such a fun, cool company. And I think it's so important to think about space exploration in the kind of sustainability sphere. Like, obviously, in a lot of ways, it is quite a new sector. And there is, or, you know, space is infinite, right? But like in some way, but not in our obviously near neighborhood. And I feel like we've got to take the um, the same sort of approach as we have for our own planet, for other planets and, and the sort of near Earth neighborhood as well, to think, okay, well, let's do this sustainably. Let's not just fill it with stuff. No, you know, everyone's seen gravity. No one wants that. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's, to- I totally agree with you, Chris. I think there's some amazing stuff happening, not just with the SST side and tracking, but also how on earth do we clear up and make sure we look after our space environment as well as our planet, our own planet's environment as well. Can I add one thing? Um, because Astroscale is one of our companies on the Harvard Space Cluster, so I, I can't resist <laughs> by saying that uh, they've, uh, they've uh, established their headquarters in, in the UK in 2017. Um, and, and in conversations with them, there was a recognition from their side that they really could work in the UK because of the leading role of the UK in the development of also space regulations, not just the, the technology side of things. And actually because of the, the innovative, innovative uh, ecosystem that we had in the UK. In fact, they recently also acquired a company that was again based on our cl- in our cluster effective space solutions uh, to actually complement their uh, in-orbit service capability into their portfolio. So it's really about the the opportunities. We have a wide range of technologies and innovations in the UK, and it's about how do you bring all of this together. So really, the, the opportunities are just endless. I think it's also really cool how it's 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 something that's so innovative as a challenge it fos- you know it requires such out of the box things that you know you've got academics working with um industry to kind of come up with these wacky ideas that end up actually happening <laughs> and i think that's what's so cool about it is that it's you know it's something we've got to solve and something inherent about the space sector is it's like we come up with the most seemingly bonkers ideas that end up working and I think that's just it's it's an area that really shows that is you know you hear about space harpoons and all sorts and it just sounds like something out of science fiction but here it is it's going to happen and this is going to make our neighborhood safer. (laughs) 
Talking a bit about innovation and uh, disruptive science, would anyone like to give an example of where you maybe or your organisation is involved in, in this kind of transformational thinking? As a services company, and most people when they look at say, okay, think of our prison, health and transport teams, very few people think of us as a space company and therefore not really at the cutting edge uh, of innovation and exploration in space. But a relatively unknown fact is that Serco actually started in the radar and space sector with the services we've been providing now at RAF Filingdales for well over 40 years. But over the last two to three years, we've built our investment programme to look at innovations to our ongoing service provisions, but also looking at future service models, including automation. With a team of over 500 people performing complex technical space-related roles, we have tended to focus on innovations in our key skill areas. So we've been developing some analytical tools and systems relating to space traffic management, space domain awareness and orbital analytics. And in the areas of launch, building on our experience in running airfields, marine ports and transport hubs, we've invested a large amount of time investigating and developing engineering solutions for spaceports and the range clearance aspects of getting vehicles safely into space by clearing corridors uh, from air, land, sea and into space. But perhaps the most exciting work we've been doing over the last 18 months is as part of Team Athena, where the founding companies, Serco, CGI, Inmarsat and Lockheed Martin, together with some new partners in industry and academia, are working together uh, on invest investments collectively to support the national ambitions in space. The hope is that the output is greater than the sum of the parts should we have all tried to do some of these on our own. We've been looking at areas of national operations infrastructure, manufacturing and downstream data services as examples. I won't go into the, all the details here, but I think uh, more will come out in the press over the next few months. From my perspective, from UK RI, I already mentioned the fact UK RI covers uh, a huge range of uh, disciplines uh, and technology development, uh, specifically talking uh, about RAL space, uh, which is part of uh, Science and Technology Facilities Council. As an example of the things we do in space, uh, we have developed uh, uh, more than, well, about 210 instruments on missions to date. So that gives you a feel for the number of uh, um, uh, instruments we've developed over the years. And and also, uh, RAL Space is currently developing the new National Satellite Test Facility, which is for the benefit of uh, industry across the UK and this is really going to be important for the UK to have this end-to-end uh, -end capability to develop the next missions without having to go abroad to test them and validate them and so on. Um, and this is important for both large companies uh, as well as the small companies in, in this area. And, and, and again, RAL space, but also, uh, in Edinburgh, we've got the UK ATC capabilities. Um, we, we cover a range of, uh, space research. So, um, so yeah, th there is an awful lot that we, um, we can do to help industry in particular working uh, with the academic community. But one of the things that, um, has been developing over the past few years, probably about, well, about 10 years now, uh, 10, 11 years is, um, uh, the development of our, uh, space cluster at our 
which is really a very much building on the principle that Chris mentioned about how do we bring together um, diverse capabilities from a range of uh, companies, but uh, a range of universities, a range of uh, public sector organizations in a different way than we did before. About 11 years ago, we were really strong leaders still in, in, in space science, but then there was a lot of fragmentation in the sector. So this was really a start of bringing all these capabilities together to enable um, organizations like the European Space Agency to establish a strong center in the UK, because it was the first time that they actually established a presence in, in the UK. And, uh, and also working alongside the, the UK Space Agency that formed in the same time, uh, working with the satellite application Scatterbolt and bringing this strong collaborative approach uh, between public sector organizations that I mentioned and SDSC um, and the, the, the commercial sector to do things a bit differently and do what is basically uh, bigger than the individual parts. I was actually going to say, Barbara, I'm super grateful to SCSC um, for something that happened really recently, which was the um, Winchcom meteorite, the first meteorite to have fallen in the last 30 years. I was lucky enough to be part of the search team that went out and collected it and then got to study it. And that was all thanks to SCSC. And it also, like you said, a very much a collaborative effort because we had amateur astronomers who were who had their um, all-sky cameras that detected the fireball, working with the academics, you know, all kind of funded by STSC. We had people in Australia doing the maths, kind of work constraining exactly where this field was. And then I got to actually crush this thing and study it and zap it and do all sorts. And I think it's, it was amazing that SDFC actually, in the space of like two weeks, just like were able to fund this massive team of scientists from across the, across the country. Um, and it, it really has changed planetary science unimaginably so in the space of no time at all. And I think it was just such a joyous event in the middle of lockdown. Um, and yeah, it came thanks to our awesome camera networks. And then, yeah, CFC saying, here, we'll fund a massive collaboration of scientists across the country to let's work out, let's study this thing that is older than the Earth. So, yeah, super grateful <laughs> for that. Thank you. That that is a great uh, a great uh, feedback to receive. Thank you so much. It's um it's how we like to see ourselves uh, like big enablers of innovation and collaboration, and that's what we we want to do even at larger scale now because we we we're doing all sorts of initiatives, but it's really about how do we scale them up? How do we actually support? anywhere across the UK. We are also developing new clusters uh, in different areas. We started with Harwell, but now we're developing a cluster in Northwest, uh, where there is a big center for aerospace and digital. Um, but we, we really are there to support everybody across the UK. Thinking about uh, clusters and, and new centers of innovation in space, Sarah, why don't you tell us a bit about what's happening in Leicester over the next few months? Yeah, so we've recently uh, welcomed the opening of Spaceport Leicester here in Leicester. And again, the point of Spaceport Leicester is to do essentially what Chris said, is to bring everybody together and to make what we have bigger than the sum of its parts, really. So we obviously have the university in Leicester who work a lot on space missions, as well as Blue Skies Astronomy and Research, but also... 
the aim of Space Park is to move businesses and have innovation hubs at the site as well as the university access. So I'm really excited to be able to send our project students and our undergraduates to the Space Park to intern with companies, but also to use the facilities that they'll bring to the site and the new facilities we will build at the site. So everybody can gain this hands-on experience of um, the facilities and the laboratories that perhaps they wouldn't normally get to experience as part of an undergraduate degree. So that's that's really cool. I'm really looking forward to that. We've got and there's an ESA Business Innovation Centre and the Sprint program where we're trying to collaborate businesses and innovation as well as the academic side of things to exploit the blue skies research and to expand sort of better to bring everybody together so we can all sort of show each other what we do and how we can all use our own stuff. As sometimes this gets this gets me to academia and businesses, everything can sort of be in its own little silos and there's not as much cross-pollination as there could be between the research and the people. So what the hope is by bringing everybody together and with our undergraduates, we will not only inspire, but inspire in fact, the next generation of um, students to get involved and to stay in the space sector, but also to come up with some of these really exciting and potentially wacky, as Anya said, new developments around um, stuff that we need from our space sector in the future. And also, Sarah, as a research scientist, uh, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about work, what you're excited about uh, in your domain looking forward. Oh, goodness. So looking forward, it has to be the James Webb Space Telescope, which has been in the future for as long as my research career. And when I um, first started out doing my PhD and afterwards, I used to show people around our Space Research Centre at Leicester uh, on UCAS and Open Day tours, showing them what we did and why we were a great university. And I used to walk past Mary in our clean room. Pretty much every week, I'd walk past the bits of Miri that we work we worked on and explain to people that it's um, we did a lot of thermal testing. It's super important. It's a mid infrared instrument. The last thing you want to do is detect the instrument. That's generally not a good thing. And now we're sort of on the cusp of launch, and the idea that I used to walk past something that is about to be launched into space is pretty incredible. But James Webb itself is pretty incredible. This insanely complex telescope that people refer to it as being the successor to Hubble. It's not really observing in the same wavelength as Hubble. It's observing in the infrared, not the optical. So we're detecting thermal things. We're detecting galaxies much further away, planets that are forming, exoplanet atmospheres, you know, other worlds. It's extremely cool. But the whole thing about it is that it, it gets launched basically as a giant piece of origami. It's completely folded up. And when it's in space, it does this amazing, magical, unfurling dance to become James Webb that we see uh, in the images. And there is a YouTube, there's a video available on YouTube. So I encourage listeners to go look at, look this up because it's, it's like watching crazy uh, engineering ballet in space. But it's just magical to think that we can do this and it's going to work and it's going to become this enormous telescope in space a long way away from the earth so if it goes wrong we can't fix it it's a long way away and it's going to explore so much more about the universe you know my science in particular has a lot of relevance for 
the mid infrared, but it's it's going to allow us to do just so much more across huge amounts of astronomy. So no, I'm really really excited about that. Chris, what are you excited about looking forward? Well, firstly, I think I need to say that for those not v- viewing this on video, it's a shame you missed the balletic and interpretive dance that Sarah was using to uh, describe the, uh, uh, the, <laughs> the 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 release of the uh, spacecraft. Um, so I'm going to come a little bit closer to home, uh, but uh, and I'm in awe now of what Sarah's just said. But uh, I'm going to come a little bit closer to home in terms of the sphere of what we can see and I'm involved with, um, and that's really seeing um, where the UK can go in terms of designing, building, launching, operating, and servicing its own spacecraft. Um, if we can meet that feat in before the end of the decade. Um, that will that will really get me excited and interested. I see different parts of it from across the services that we provide across Europe in different fragmented bits of different systems. But for us to be able to launch a satellite that we've designed and built in the UK and then operate and deliver services from it um, in in this decade, that 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 would be enough for me. Adding to what um, uh, Chris said, I think it's, uh, you know, obviously the opportunity is now developing, of being in charge of this end-to-end capability. It's amazing also in the way that we actually can develop the services and working with the customer base so that we can work with those customers, understand what they want, um, and, and address all these big issues like climate change and, um, uh, you know, any other big um, application that we can do from space. Um, but also one thing that really excites me is the, the opportunity of manufacturing in space. I think that that is a big, big thing. Also, if you think about the issue we've got with debris, with the issue we've got transporting um, into space, um, and the use of resources from Earth, you know, it's really, really an exciting thing, which also, again, seems very far away, but actually is closer than we think, in my view. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, to colleagues to making big steps in that direction, because I think that's going to revolutionize the way that we are going to, to both develop our next generation of missions and an exploration of of, uh, of the space environment. I think for me, I'm most excited in a very on-brand way as a Martian and planetary scientist um, about the ExoMars mission, which is uh, the rover is heading to Mars. We'll be leaving all touch wood, cross on all our fingers um, next year in 2022. Um, and what's amazing about that mission is not only have we got a bunch of planetary scientists in the UK who are the principal scientists on different instruments, it was actually most of it built in Stevenage at Airbus. Um, so it was flipping cool to be able to, like, as a planetary scientist about to finish my PhD, the very beginning of my kind of Martian astrobiology journey, to be seeing this complete game changer of a mission that's going to be heading touchwood to Mars next year. Um, it sounds really daft, but the most like, innovative thing from my perspective on board ExoMars is a drill, which who would be excited about a drill? Sarah, do you want to just mention Firefly for us? I can. So yeah, Dragonfly is Dragonfly, going to be, Dragonfly. Dragonfly is a recently approved mission to Titan, one of uh, Saturn's moons. And 
it's been one of the most mysterious bodies in our solar system almost forever since one of the voyages, I think, flew past it and took a very murky, very orange image of this moon and basically showed it was pretty impenetrable and nobody could see the surface and we didn't know what was going on. So one of the uh, missions to Saturn, uh, Cassini had a probe called Huygens that it dropped into Titan's atmosphere and it it gave not a huge amount of data, but it gave some information about the atmosphere in Titan. And essentially, we believe it's some sort of primordial soup almost that could be what the Earth was like before life started to be formed, really, or molecules started to come together. And Dragonfly is going to go to Saturn. And it's essentially a drone that is going to fly through Titan's atmosphere, basically to tell us what on earth is going on, on one of the weirdest worlds we know about. And as somebody who studies brown dwarfs and exoplanets, our atmos- the atmospheres that we expect to see on these objects are perhaps not that dissimilar from what we think might be going on on Titan. So I'm just really excited to see, not only to find out what they find out what they discover on Titan, but also just the whole concept of essentially taking a drone to Titan and flying it through this wonderfully weird atmosphere is just absolutely captivating to my imagination. And nobody mentioned Bepi Colombo, which is uh, the mission that is going to Mercury arriving in 2025 that I work on. So that's that's what I'm looking forward to, the arrival of this mission to Mercury, uh, which just flew past Venus in August and is and it's on its way to the inner solar system. I was going to say, it's doing some super cool stuff about rocks though, right, Bepi? Yeah, it is. It's looking, or our instrument is looking specifically at, uh, to try to tell us what the formation processes and 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 what mercury essentially is made of it's going to use x-rays to tell us about the composition of the surface and we're going to do some exciting things trying to work out what's under the surface using craters amongst other things We've talked a lot about the innovations uh, and the things we're looking forward to in the future of of space science in the UK and a little bit further afield as we talk about James Webb and missions to other planets. Um, But what do you think we could do better? Is there something missing where we could really um, make a change and and improve things for the environment of the space sector in the UK? I think that um, we can be more risk prone. (laughs) Uh, So we need to, to go for it much more. Um, we, we've got fantastic innovation as we already discussed, but, um, we, we just don't do enough risky things, but that's not to anybody's fault really in terms of, of the sector. It's because we need to build the right system that supports these developments. So we need to be ready to go for, you know, really cutting edge stuff that can be quite risky. Uh, I mean, a high risk of failure with it, uh, without being afraid for that failure of that failure, and actually going for it and failing and failing until you actually get there. Um, and this is done, for example, in the US is a good example. Uh, but there is a system that supports that, especially from the private sector. So it's the financing system that allows people to do this, organizations to do this. Uh, I think government, um, the intervention of government is really important, but that's this, just the starting point. So we need to have that together with the right financing system, private financing system that supports scaling up of 
you know, innovative developments. But in order to get there, you actually need to go through that curve of high risk developments and not being afraid to do that. So that's, I think, what's holding us back and we need to really work on it. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Barbara. Uh, and I think I'd add agility and speed uh, to that risk aversion as well. We don't want to block ourselves, bog ourselves down with bureaucracy. Um, I think we've made some good steps over the last couple of years, as Barbara said, in cost government in terms of both military and civil side, structuring themselves differently to be able to get that cross government uh, view. Um, but it does need to be backed up by um, innovation and investment from the private organisations as well. And I think, you know, if you look at some of the other tier two nations, they're, move, the other, they're moving a lot faster than us. So we've got to try, you know, India, you look at UAE, other, com- other countries like that. We've got to make sure we don't bog ourselves down and, and not move at the right pace. And it comes back to something that Barbara really said is like, failure is like inherent to space and it's something I always say to um kids it's like the number one skill um if you want to go in the space sector it's not being a wizard or any kind of genius with coding I absolutely think that the number one spill is skill is resilience and kind of grit and accept kind of being accepting of failure because space is really hard (laughs) stuff breaks um so to actually have a funding body that is there to say we accept that this is hard and a lot of the time stuff is going to fail I think that sends a really good message to the sector that it's not just about doing the absolute sort of tried and tested most safe stuff and I think you need also to have um, a ready private financing ecosystem that is ready to take forward those innovations and scale them up because that's a big issue that we have in the UK of not being able to retain those innovators in the UK uh, and and actually the big companies of tomorrow to actually really grow fast within this country. And we tend to lose them elsewhere because there isn't just the right ecosystem to support them. And that's something that we're trying to address, for example, within the Howell Space Cluster, but it's something that needs to be done at a wider scale across the UK. And if we really want to think about the space industry more broadly and the fact that actually we're going from designing spacecraft, building them, launching them, and then all the things we do with the data, a lot of the work that we do is interdisciplinary these days or we're moving in that direction. And so we can't just be focused on a single thing. We have to be able to work with others in different teams across the sector. And we want to encourage and broaden the skill sets that we have here in the UK. So how do we go about doing that as a sector? What do we need to do to make sure that we have the breadth of talent that we need to move forwards? So for me, I think the most kind of important thing, I suppose, I suppose the thing that I care about the most in this area of like, let's attract the right people um, and keep them. I think to do that, first and foremost, we've got to have a sector that is welcoming and accessible to everyone. Um, we have this big skills gap. Um, everyone talks about it, that the space sector is growing. What is it? 10% we want to be, 10% of the world space sector by 2030. We're going to need a lot more people to do that. Um, and as it stands, we really do have quite a sort of diversity problem with the space sector. And that's the kind of issue when you're only recruiting and retaining one group of people. You're inherently not going to have as big a talent pool than if you make it welcoming and accessible to everyone. 
And so as far as I'm concerned, we've got to make the sector inclusive. We've got to think about how do we make sure our events are um, open to everyone? How do we make sure that um, in the workplace there's not um, any kind of bullying and harassment going on? How do we make sure there are support structures there for people of colour who maybe have never ever seen anyone who looks like them in the sector before? Um, So I really think there's a lot that needs to be done to make sure that as a sector we are recruiting not just one type of person. Um, There is that classic argument of that if you've got a more diverse board, it's going to foster more innovation. But I think it's not just about that. I think, yes, there is that idea that it's going to... bring new ideas and I think that kind of goes without saying but more than anything it's the very simple thing it's a numbers game if you want a bigger workforce stop putting off half that workforce or three quarters of that workforce by the just your structures that you have in place and your policies I couldn't agree more and I think um I had a, the opportunity earlier this year we were um doing some uh, stem outreach uh, with one of a school near us um and realized that there was a huge the, the biggest challenge we've got is awareness um I, I we tapped into a whole group of stem students who were leaving at uh year 13 six six two in old money um and they didn't even know about the space sector um so um we we were tried to do some work experience but in the spirit of COVID, it wasn't quite as simple as that with um, with the school pupils. So um, together with the National Space Academy at Leicester, um, we actually took work experience to um, a number of schools in Kent. Um, and again, awareness was the biggest challenge. Um, STEM students just finished their GCSEs and they'd had a torrid time doing their GCSEs through COVID. Um, we're all coming up. They had no clue of the space sector. Um, and we, were, we put together a programme that was... Um, was a started off what you need to build something to go in space to launch it survive in space do something in space re-enter it um and exploration of space but we also brought in um key stakeholders from across the sector so we had um avm godfrey came in from space command we had a young lady called charlotte who's the commercial integration cell rebecca evenden came in uh, tim peak dialed in um, and actually by the end of the week um the 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 students had actually got more of an appreciation of of the vast different roles that can be performed and we a lot of the week we were saying look you don't need to focus on a specific area yet you're only 16 stay doing stem but be aware that this is a, a sector that you can um actually go and explore as you can work your way through either academia or into apprenticeships and, and move through and it was a really great experience um we did have as i say stem students they were interested and they were stem minded um but when we went in none of them knew what the space sector was about and when we left we only had 30 but when we left 28 out of the 30 said that they would work in the space sector um which was you know quite a good movement in a week um and we also had more girls than boys on the course which again was another tick and another move forward um but yeah a really great um great experience and i think um i'd thank uh anu and the team at the uh, space academy for adding the crazy physics that went around it as well. I mean, we made comets with dry ice, rosé wine and Worcester sauce. I mean, who knew that that was the ingredients for how to build a comet? I think um, it's interesting what you said about how they don't really have, um, young people often don't have awareness of the sector. 
One thing I'm finding more and more is that people, if they do have awareness of the sector, traditionally it was NASA and that was it. They didn't even know we had ESA, for example. But more and more now, I'm certainly finding is people think you have to be Elon Musk to work in the space sector. You have to be a genius who works famously 80, 90 hour weeks. And I think that itself kind of has its own issues that you're just going to burn yourself out if you do that. And I think it, it, it's so interesting how the, the perception of what space is, is changing as as we get this commercialization of the sector. And I think it's really it's really important that we show that there are other role models because otherwise young people think it's just some kind of genius in California who can do space, you know? <laughs> I think technical role models as well are super important. And Chris mentioned apprenticeships, and we, we've been involved in developing certainly the level four apprenticeship for space technicians and the level six that should be um, hopefully approved later this year. But it's opening up part of diversifying the workforce is also opening up that step back from GCSEs, A-levels, do a degree, maybe a PhD or a master's. It doesn't have to be that way. And other countries, particularly European countries, have accepted and well-respected technical routes into technical careers. And we don't have that so much in the UK. Apprenticeships are looked down on a bit compared to A-levels. And as a result, a lot of our technicians in the space industry don't come from the UK. They've they've come from Europe and elsewhere. And part of building our own space ambitions, I think the number that's that's given is thirty thousand new space jobs in order to achieve that ten percent. That that's an awful lot of people. And now we have um, the T level system as well. It's it's fitting space into that framework and moving people across and between and just showing them that it's not it doesn't have to be GCSE a level physics and maths to degree into the space sector that's not the only route but I worry sometimes that's the only route people see because they see academics or you know people engineers masters in engineering who are the people that go into their schools and tell them about about space no, so you're absolutely spot on. And I think um, it, it was interesting with, you know, we only had a sample size of 30, but they were asking those very same questions. You know, what, what, you know, what route do I have to go? Is it, there isn't one specific route. Um, there's lots of different routes. There's apprentices available. There's internships available. It's not all about specific. You must go and do I mean, we, we often say in, in, the, um, in the services we provide, we cannot get the skills uh, uh, you know as an educational course that we need so we'll take people in trained to a certain level but then we will have to spend a year or two training them how to fly a spacecraft do the orbital analysis that we need to do uh, mod, you know uh, monitor or use the payload on the back of a spacecraft we that doesn't come from a specific educational course that's got to be learned in 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 um a particular company in a particular role and um you know, managing platforms, services you know, is, is is definitely where I think we've got a key strength in the UK. And I think the volume of roles um, will increase uh, over the next few uh, few years. So that was certainly the advice we, we, we were sharing. I think it's also about really understanding how across different sectors 
we can actually root careers in space also from across different sectors. It's not just about being a, a scientist in, in the space sector or an engineer and then building up your career in that way. It, there are so many different ways and routes. And actually, because of the way space is evolving, because it's so relevant to so many other areas or so many other uh, businesses, really, it's actually important to have people with those insights, you know, people that come from different sectors to actually work with us and develop those skills, the space skills, but coming from different sectors. Uh, and the same is important for us to actually raise awareness of what space can do for other sectors. It's important that we bring people from the space sector into other sectors so that other businesses actually understand more in detail what space can do for them and they don't see space as something far away that is not relevant to their businesses. So I think there needs to be more of this open mindset and more cross-fertilization. Um, and I, I've actually seen this also within uh, the Howe campus, you know, how by developing the our space cluster, and then after that, the health tech cluster there, and then after that, the energy tech cluster, um, and now the quantum cluster in development, how all these different sectors and technologies interact with each other, and how actually the companies within those sectors interact with it, with each other by way of proximity and collaboration. And actually from that, we have more innovation. We've got cross-fertilization of skills as well. We are also in the process of um, developing uh, a new scheme within STSC, which is the skills factory, which is really about leveraging the capabilities we have across STSC, leveraging our facilities and, and, and knowledge base in a way that, um, you know, we can transfer it to the next generation. Um, and by doing so, uh, then students can come out after school. Um, the first round could be 300, up to 300 of them being trained, uh, going through different uh, um, qualifications of one year, two year or four year um, scheme. Uh, and after that, they can have also um some experience within companies on the campus across different areas so the the idea is that again we break the barriers of where these um students can actually go and and have their experience so they could perhaps work within the space sector but they could work within the energy sector or other sectors and that will really broaden their experience and and visibility of other uh, developments so I think these are the things that we really need to to look for, um, as well as working more collaboratively, like Chris was saying, for example, across the UK. I think uh, businesses need to really uh, work together to really understand how they can offer uh, the training to to the next generation and and open up the facilities as well to those students to to really inspire them to say yeah this is a sector where we want to go well this has been a fascinating conversation looking at the future of innovation in the uk space sector and the development of our future workforce this is the final episode in our podcast series of five podcasts i'd just like to thank again our panel for joining us today and everyone for listening 
the UK Space Conference 2021 online will be held on the 27th to the 29th of September 2021. Tickets are on sale now, so please go to www.spaceconference.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn with the hashtags UKSpace21 and UKSC21. And this episode was sponsored by Team Athena and UK Research and Innovation. <laughs>